Jiggle, how's everything going? I'm good, brother. How you been? I've been good. I've been good. You know, I, I you know, things things are, uh, you know, getting crazier by the minute. But yeah, uh, where where are you right now in the world? In Tom's River, New Jersey. Wow. And how how is it over there in New Jersey with COVID and everything? It's picking up. It is picking up. Um, <laughs> I just read something actually this morning. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but it was like I was reading it to my wife. The numbers are rising, uh, but the death rate is very low, right? So um, that's the thing. Like you know, people are very afraid, but when you look at the numbers, actually, the vaccinated ones are very, very low. It's like way less than one percent of the people that are vaccinated. But there's a huge number. Five million people actually in New Jersey have um, have uh, this year had um, COVID. It seems okay. pretty high. I'm not sure if that's a one year like total or this year. I'm not sure if it's year to date. It's five million. Mm-hmm. Only fourteen thousand um, have have gotten uh, COVID that had a vaccine, 14,000 mm-hmm. people. And it was a very, very de minimis number. Something like 80 people died that were vaccinated. So when you add that number, okay. you take 80, 80 people, 80 people divided by uh-huh. the 5 million. It's like, it's like nothing. It, they all probably had underlying <laughs> conditions of some sort, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes yeah. sense. So I, I mean, thing, things are different all over the world. And uh, as you're well aware, you know, things are changing all uh, in all sorts of ways. But uh, I, I brought you on the show because I want to talk to you about venture capital. But before we do, um, can you give my audience sort of like a background of what you've done and, um, you know, like sort of your uh, short version of your career, uh, you know, so that they have some context on who you are and so on. Absolutely. Um, uh, about almost 20 years, I've been in the um, startup world and um, mm-hmm. built three startups that were successful. I sold a dating site in the early 2000s. Um, it was called Rate or Date. I sold it to MatchNet PLC, um, which mm-hmm. owns JDate and AmericanSingles.com. I think they're now called, uh, Match, MatchNet's now called Spark Networks, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Then I built a social network. And then from there, I came up with this idea for online video sharing. Uh, Vimeo was doing online video sharing, which I didn't know initially, but we did the embedding code. I was the first one to do the viral embed where you copy and paste it and then you can put it somewhere else. Uh, that was mm-hmm. in 2004 into 2005. I sold it. I sold it to a company in New York City. We scaled pretty large. We were larger than YouTube at one time. We were the largest video site at one point. YouTube shot past us. Um, they took a takedown notice from uh, NBC from an SNL skit. And uh, they were smart. We just complied with the law and did our takedown process for DMCA. <laughs> they sent it to the media. <laughs> and before you know it, they had all this media exposure. I'll never forget it. I was like literally flipping through the channels one night and I see YouTube's logo on television. I was like, are you kidding me? What's going on here? <laughs> and I flipped to the next channel. They were on every channel that night. I was like, oh my God. And then my co-founders called me up and we were like, yeah, we didn't play this one right. <laughs> so they sued us uh, about, a, they sued us about, after YouTube got acquired, it was like six months later that we ended up getting like a lawsuit or something like that. I can get that correctly. Um, that ended up ultimately, it took like another year for us to realize that we were walking dead. Man. Nobody wanted to invest. We were in discussions with Viacom, Fox, you name it, were trying to buy us and everybody backed out. They're like, you got to clear this lawsuit up. We eventually had to close the business. Um, prior to closing the business, you were, it was obvious where this was going, that it wasn't working out. So I raised money for a new idea uh, that was called WikiU. Um, my investors included Chamath at, at he, Chamath was at um, the Mayfield Fund, and Raj Kapoor was the lead investor. Raj Kapoor from uh, Snapfish. Uh, he also introduced me to Reed Hoffman, who was an investor, and Josh Koppelman, who was an investor from First Round Capital. Um, mm. That also didn't work out, so I had two failures back to back. I felt like a real loser that year. <laughs> um, that didn't work out. Um, then I started another startup, and that one was the one that I sold, and that was called Yashi. Uh, originally started as a company called Gamers Media. It was an advertising network for video. We put it in front of casual games. You you probably recall those casual games had like a loading um, thing when they loaded on the page, and so I, it was a perfect opportunity to put a pre-roll video while you're waiting for the game to load anyway. It was perfect, right? And then uh, we eventually scaled out, changed the name to Yashi, scaled it from 2007 to 2015, sold it in 2015 for $33 million. And uh, and then I haven't. I don't think I'll ever run another startup again as a, as an operator. <laughs> I'm done. Um, but I am an investor. So along the year before we even sold that, I started angel investing. Um, you know, I had guys like Reed and those guys believed in me and they invested. And so um, I just felt like it's a little bit of reciprocity, kind of giving back to the ecosystem in a way. Uh, but I also treat it as an asset class, and I, I don't just give money away as a charity. I, they have to make sense. I have a basic investment thesis. I call it TTT DSD. I look at the team, I look at the traction, and I look at the TAM. 
Um, and then from there, I look at the product and I say, is it differentiated? Is it scalable? Or do I like the marketing plan for scalability? And then if it scales, will it be defensible? Is there a moat that would be around this business in some way? And uh, if you look at something like YouTube, it's really not that differentiated. I mean, they literally copied what we did, right? It's not that differentiated. Um, and it's actually not really that defensible, except for the fact that when you hit massive critical mass in by itself, it's defensible from that. Everybody goes where all the creators are and the creators go where everybody is, right? So it's perpetually, uh, it just doesn't stop. Um, so this is kind of how my investments is. I've invested in a better part of about 100 companies uh, as an angel investor. And uh, I got like six unicorns in my portfolio. Um, and I have a few that are trending to get there. They're like $700 million valuation, $800 million valuation. Um, so, yep. And then outside of that, as you know, we've talked, I'm, I'm a father of four. So I spend most of my time doing that actually. <laughs> um, and just, you know, hanging out in clubhouse and Twitter and just shaking things up and trying to annoy people all day. <laughs> I'm a troll. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, so you've been on like sort of like both sides of, of this whole capital um, begging and like giving kind of thing. Uh, what what was it like sort of like raising money and what, what was that process uh, you know, like what did that entail and so on? It's very, very difficult to raise money. Um, mm. So over the years, um, I've been to like, I've been on Sand Hill Road. I went to Sequoia and all these places to pitch mm. and uh, Kleiner, you name it. I've, I've been to all of them. Um, I did raise money from Mayfield. It was very serendipitous how it happened. Um, we were being sued at the time and Raj Kapoor came to me and Aaron, who were running the company and says, I think you can merge with my, one of my portfolio companies. We fly out to California. We meet with Greg and John. Um, who were running a company called Tagged, T-A-G-G-E-D. I don't know what it's called now. Mm -hmm. I think they pivoted. Um, but, but we just, I quickly, in that meeting, was like, I don't think this is going to work out because Aaron was the guy who, who came up with the idea for Bolt.com in 1996. They were the first social mm -hmm. network. It was a team social network. Um, so mm -hmm. he, was, he was a pioneer. And the end of the old saying, it's like the pioneers have arrows in the back. If I turn around, you see a bunch of arrows. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So so we go we go and we meet with these guys. And like within 10 minutes, I flew out there, you know, to California from, from New York. And uh I sit down with them and I'm watching Aaron talk to, to Greg and I'm just sitting there watching these guys and I'm like, this is never going to work. <laughs> so at one point I interrupt and I'm like, guys, uh, who's going to be the CEO when it's all said and done? And I didn't get a good answer. And I was like, I don't think this is going to work, but I'm happy to explore. And they're like, yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> so, so that was it. And uh, from there, I came back to New York. And then the next day, Raj was still in town. We literally went that day, came back the next day, mm -hmm. come back. He's in town. He's doing meetings. He's like, I'll stop by. And, uh, and we'll get into this in a second as to why I think this is the case. Yeah. He's like, well, if that's not going to work out, what else you got? <laughs> and I'm like, really? Like, they're just trying to deploy capital, right? That's that's their job. Their job is literally to deploy capital, and they earn two and twenty on the capital they're deploying, right? Um, and I told him the idea I had for WikiU. He loved it. It is a good idea. It wasn't even built. It was literally the back of a napkin, right? And um, mm -hmm. we were proven entrepreneurs. So from a team perspective, we built things. He didn't think that maybe they can't do it. The real question is, mm -hmm. will it ever get any traction? We had no traction because it wasn't built. Um, we, we raise the money very quickly. Um, but I will say just in general, the way it kind of works is, uh, it's like the Cantillion effect we talked about, right? Mm -hmm. They're closest to the money. They have access to the money. We're not closest to the money. So like you said, you're almost begging for that money, but they have to deploy that money. It's the business that they're in. Right. And we can get into all this stuff in a few minutes, but, um, yeah, it's a difficult game. Um, you have to ch check certain check boxes. It used to be that you had to like move to the Valley. I mean, the one thing I'll say about venture and stuff is at least they're kind of relaxing, the unspoken code, which is you come to us and because we don't want to fly around for board meetings. They could do board meetings uh -huh. and Zoom calls now, you know. Yeah, uh, th things have definitely changed. But at, at least when you were starting, I, I know that the game has changed tremendously in like the last, uh, you know, 20 years or so. Uh, but when, when you were going out there, even like getting some of these meetings is yeah. actually not that easy. And, That's right. uh, and like making sure that you can even pitch in front of the right people. And of course, they've seen absolutely everything. So it, for them, it's all old hat. Uh, can you describe that process of like getting these meetings and then once you're in the meeting, what it's actually like? 100%. Um, it's nothing like Shark Tank, by the way. People have never <laughs> done with anything. You don't stand up and pitch and present. It doesn't, it's just like a hangout in a conference room. Right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's really what it is. Uh, it's very relaxed. It's very relaxed setting. I will say that people on the West Coast are entirely different people than the East Coast. We meet with investors mm -hmm. on the East Coast. They're very focused on money and stuff. Over there, they're focused on user growth. And so they're kind of a different thing. You know, They're very chill and relaxed over there. They're high strong over here. It is culturally totally different depending on where you're raising money. How do you get the meeting? Uh, you don't call VCs and ask for a meeting. If you have to ask okay. them for a meeting, they don't want you. They want to know that you have access through somebody else. So it's about introductions to people that they believe and trust in. So it's a lot of social proof, social currency. Um, and so for a young kid who's just out of college, it's really difficult, right? Because when you're young, who do you know? 
you could be very, very talented, right? But the only reason why Mark Zuckerberg was getting in meetings is that traction, right? If he was just coming out of Harvard with an idea back when he did it in 2004, probably wouldn't have got a meeting with anybody. But he was scrappy. He built it. He had the grit and he got the traction and they respect traction. So when I had traction, I had tens of millions of users on, on our site. Everybody wants that meeting because they want to invest in something like that, right? They want the next big thing. Um, it's really, really difficult. Now, it's probably easier than ever today to raise money because because of what Naval has done with AngelList and all the angel investors that are out there. There's just so much damn money available. And there's nowhere to put your money anymore, as we both know. We know where to put it. <laughs> but a lot of people traditionally now are still investing like in traditional means. And so the capital is freely available. There's angel investors. You can crowdfund online and stuff. So there is, a, there is definitely a difference now than there was 15 plus years ago. Um, you know, money's more available. But if you're trying to go down the venture path, you got to get introductions to people they respect, worked with, prior investments that they've made. So your job as an entrepreneur is obviously a lot of things, but the most important thing is liquidity. You need to have, have capital to keep the business running, particularly if you're not mm. profitable in the beginning. And so you have to do everything by any means necessary to keep that going. And so that means you got to network. You need to know a lot of different people, right? And so that, that was the key. Like I was always a networker. I was always talking to people, building relationships, as well as the other things I did for the business itself. Um, and that's kind of probably why it happened. I had a lot of traction and I was a good networker. Yeah. And, and this is something that I, I've also worked at a lot of startups, as you know. And, and this is something that I always noticed about like a startup CEO. Most of the time that they spend is actually like meeting people and shaking hands and essentially raising money the entire time. That's like 90% of a CEO's job. And maybe the other 10% is selling or something like that. But that that seemed to be the case. And that what. Why is capital just so important? Why, why is the liquidity, why has it become such uh, 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 the crux of any startup at this point? I'm going to repeat something that I heard a few years ago, um, mm. Chamath Papahadi. So Chamath says, it's a Ponzi scheme. In my words, guys, it's not me. And, you know, in many ways, it kind of is a Ponzi scheme. Um, mm. you know, these are investors. They're out there. They're not investing their own money. You got you to remember that. They're investing mm. outside money. They're investing on behalf, on behalf of the limited partners that invest in their funds. These are the pension funds, the sovereign wealth funds, et cetera. Um, and then they earn fees on that money, right? They earn a management mm. fee. It's a 2% annual management fee. They also earn 20% interest on the carried interest. So the, the carried interest mm. is the profit. So if there is a profit on it, they get 20% of that. Some funds even get more than that. Like I'm sure Sequoia probably demands a much higher percentage because they kill it right they think it's done, like 30 and three maybe yeah, it's crazy like yeah yeah the best yeah. of the best are getting crazy fees um yeah and so we call this the two and 20 in, in that in that world mm -hmm. it's the two and 20 fee right uh management fee plus carried interest uh so the game uh, that they're playing it's like i said before it's about access they have the access to the sovereign wealth funds and the pension funds we can't go to them family offices we don't have access to that they don't want to talk to us right they want them to do all the sorting and the aggregating and all this kind of stuff managing it the board meetings like they you know that's just not what they do, right? For, for the pension funds and stuff. Um, so, you know, what they do is they're just constantly raising money and they're constantly deploying the money. Uh, to do this, the founders have to spend, as you said, most of their time raising money, right? So they're out there, they're trying to raise money, they're trying to grow the business at the same time. Um, but, you know, it, it's interesting because at the end of the day, what these guys are doing, these guys being the VCs, is they're pumping, pumping, pumping for growth. That's the interesting thing about this. This was not always the case. I mean, maybe it was in the 90s. I don't know. But in the mid to early 2000s, when I got involved, it was after the crash of 2000. And they're very conservative back then. They weren't putting out money because it was like this dot-com thing. I don't know. you know. So, um, But like now, it's a little different. Today, it's about growth, a superficial growth, though. Right, the mm -hmm. superficial growth is the real issue. So you put this money in, and Chamath says that for every every dollar that goes into an investment from the VCs, forty cents is estimated to go to marketing to grow these superficial numbers. These are like the eyeballs, visitors, um, whatever those numbers are, metrics that you're you're trading on. And when I say trading, it's like when you go to a VC, you say, okay, these are our benchmark goals. We're going to try to get to these goals. And then to get there, they they spend money on advertising. So what are they doing? They're dumping all this money in Google and Facebook ads and Instagram and stuff like that. And they're driving the traffic back to their site. And then they're hoping to get some customers to grow. They're trying to figure out what the LTV is, the lifetime value of the customer, what the CAC is, the customer acquisition cost, and all this kind of stuff. But like, how do they really know? They're growing so fast and they're pushing, 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 and they don't even know what the attrition numbers are, or they're ignoring those numbers and they're just focusing on these these other vanity numbers. Why are they doing that? Because the VCs are making them do that in board meetings. They're constantly saying, "What's what's your growth look like? You know, tell us the growth. You know, because they want it to grow. And why do they want it to grow? Because they want to deploy your capital so that you have to raise more money. That's what this is mm -hmm. all about. So it's really an interesting game. 
Um, they're not really focused on the product market fit as much these days, right? They'll figure that out as it scales. We get the scale, we'll figure it all out, right? So it's all about grow, grow, grow. But it's also about, okay, let's say I've raised some money and I give you, uh, Jimmy, I give you like $10 million in a round. I want to blow through the money as fast as I can and get the growth as numbers as fast as I can. Because when you blow through that money, guess what you have to do? You got to raise more money. They have this thing called Parada rights. They also have accrued mm-hmm. dividends and all kinds of other things. And these are dilutive things to the founders, the early investors, the seed investors, the angel investors, and the shareholders and your employees. But it's not to the VCs. They maintain their percentage. So if they came in and took 20, 25%, they're never getting rid of that. Because every round, they just add whatever they need to to maintain that percentage in the future dilution because they have the right to do that. And they'll participate That's in all the rights. rights. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So who gets screwed on that? The, the founders do. Mostly young guys in their 20s don't even know what they're signing up for, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the thing, man. It's like, it's, it's kind of sketchy in some ways, right? What they're doing. And so they see you running out of money. They push them, they push more money in, uh, into the company. They kind of keep this kind of perpetual thing going over and over again. Um, and then they go to that, you're an A, a round investor. So you're the A round investor. So you put the money into our company you push, 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 push. We deplete the money very quickly in like a year or so. And then you say, well, I got a buddy over at Sequoia. He does B rounds. So then you bring that, like roll up both in or something, right? So these guys come in and they just dump the money in. They give me $25 million, right? And they do the same thing in the board meetings. They're like, we got to pump these numbers. We got to pump these numbers, right? So they pump, pump, pump. And then you just put more money into employees, marketing. Of course, you're hiring a lot of people too. You're opening offices all over the place, spending all the money. You're running out of money. And then the B guy says, I know some guys that do series C rounds. And what happens when they do the B round? Well, the guy who's in the A round, your round, that guy's mark to market goes up. Meaning whatever the valuation was that you came in at, let's say it was a $10 million valuation. Now we're going to mark you up to $20 million. Now you look like a genius. It's your, all your LPs. It's all your sovereign wealth fund guys, family offices. are like, damn, Jimmy's killing it. So on a mark-to-market return, you have an IRR that's going up. But there's no realized return. IRR is internal investing. rate of return. Yeah, yeah, internal rate of return, right? So so, th- so this is happening, right? And you're, and you're looking great on paper, right? And so you go back to your LPs at some point and say, I'm a great investor. Look at all these investments I made. They're all going up by 3, 5x. This is amazing. We should give me some more money. We'll do it again. <laughs> and that's what they do. <laughs> they raise a new fund themselves. They're always raising money. So the fund that mm-hmm. you started with might have been like a $500 million fund. Now you have a billion dollar fund in the Series A round investor. Mm-hmm. The B guys push it to the C and then they mark it up. And what happens is you get marked up again, right? So at each time mm-hmm. you mark up, mark up. They go in A round, B round, C round. And this is also perpetuated because after the crash in 2000, there was this law that was passed called the Sarbanes-Oxley law. And mm-hmm. uh, so that actually made it a little cost prohibitive to go public early. If you look way back, like Microsoft, Apple, all these legacy companies, even Amazon, right? They went public very quickly in the life cycle within the first three to five years, right? Companies are waiting nine, 10, 12 years to go public now, which is actually a detriment to all the public investors because they're getting these things so late and all the growth is gone that you used to be able to be exposed to in the public markets, which is kind of a shame. So who's getting that money now? The wealthy individuals, family offices. Um, wealth management firms at like Fidelity and stuff, or Morgan, not Morgan Creek. I'm thinking adjacent for now. Um, but you know, <laughs> like Bank of America as an example, right? They have these, they have these family offices all over, and then they call up they, because it's easy to raise money now. If, if they can't fill out a round when they get to these large rounds, they go to all these wealthy individuals, which are doctors, lawyers, accountants, etc., you know, professional athletes, etc., and and they're managing their money at the big banks. And they say, oh, we can get you an Uber at $60 billion valuation. Are you interested? Yeah, yeah, I want it. Get me in, right? And everybody wants it because it's like the cool thing at a cocktail party. I'm in Uber, right? Um, but what are you going to make on the E round? <laughs> you know, It's like, how many rounds did we do, right? Like, And then they go public. In some of these cases, you probably have seen, they go public and it crashes down because the public markets now, te- they, they base it off of a multiple of earnings, right? And most mm-hmm. of them go public. And, and even after 10 years, a lot of them don't even have profit. It's, it's just unbelievable. Um, so this happens over and over and over again. They have, they really don't have any real numbers that matter. They have vanity metrics. Is it, is it sustainable? Did they ever find product market fit? Do they even give a shit about product market fit? Probably not <laughs> because they're conflicted. They care about their two and 20 and they want to keep raising for their future rounds. And if you look at these companies, these funds, I should say, they've gotten massive over the years, right? And, and this has a lot to do with the things that we talk about all the time with Bitcoin. They've gotten massive because there's nowhere to put money anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So they're like, well, what do we do? The, the risk-free rate return is how you kind of how you would uh, benchmark what you want to invest in, and now it's like mm-hmm. zero to negative interest rates for that level of money, right? So you're you, there's nowhere. It's the Fed is forcing people to take risk. They're forcing this 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 behavior actually, right? Um, I wouldn't say they're forcing uh, uh, what the VCs are doing, but from the LP perspective, like, well, I can't sit on it. I used to have the sixty forty. The forty's gone. 
I'm losing money on the 40. So now they have a variety of different asset classes that they're looking at. They're looking at um, public equities. They're looking at private equity, real estate, art, like all kinds of things. Crypto, they're starting to do that too mm-hmm. now. And they're just going to keep pumping in because there's nowhere to put money. Well, so a, a few very interesting things that you said there. Essentially, uh, a lot of companies that would be public fairly early in their life cycle are now private and that it, it's really like, you know, series E, F and G that, that, that are getting the equivalent of what would have been in the public market. So more people are streaming into the private equity market uh, of, uh, you know, funding a lot of this stuff. Um, and uh, in addition, like VCs have this sort of like broker role where they have access to a lot of different startups. They get that deal flow, if you will. And, yep. uh, you know, they, they also have a lot, uh, you know, they, they know how to go sell to the sovereign wealth funds, the uh, family offices and all of these uh, places that have serious amounts of money. So going back a little bit, um, where are these LPs getting their money and how did they come into their wealth and how is it, how, how has the VC industry just grown so much because it used to be a very niche industry, uh, especially in the eighties and nineties, it was, it was tiny. There, there weren't that many. And then like starting in 2000, it just, it started growing and growing uh, to the point where like, there are just so many VCs at this point and all of them chasing the same 12 deals or something like that. Um, like what, what happened? What, what's the history, uh, you know, you having sort of lived through a lot of it? I mean, I can't tell you for sure, but I think what I think is happening is, again, like I said before, this is all, I think, a function of the Fed, in my opinion. The policies have created these issues, if you really think about it. Um, the 0% interest rates and the negative interest rates, effectively negative. We're not negative in this country, but globally, there are negative interest rates in Europe. But here, if you're at like less than 3%, you're effectively negative anyway, right? 1%. You're losing money based on being debased. So they have to figure out, what do I do with the money? And so they push it into assets. And since everybody's now pushing it into assets and there's no more risk-free money, like because it wants to go into risk capital, um, it's pushing asset values up tremendously, right? Mm-hmm. It's really dangerous because at some point, if this unwinds, there's going to be a crash like we've never seen. It's going to just going to take out the Great Depression crash, like beyond. It's going to be really dangerous, which is why they print the money the way they do, trying to avoid the inevitable, which is inevitably going to happen. Uh, so I think that's what's happening. It's like the money is being forced into a limited amount of supply of things to get into. And it's push, pushing assets up. And then so where's that, what happens is they get returns because they do actually get returns, right? Um, not all these VCs are making money. I think like more than half of them are probably losing money. I forget the latest study on that. You can look it up. But it's it's really surprising actually when you look at it. It's like how are these guys continually raising money if they're not returning any profit? It just doesn't make any sense. But that is the continuing effect, right? That's exactly what it is. They're closest to the money. They have the relationship and the trust. They're also, if you look at the VCs, go on their websites, go to Sequoia, go to Benchmark, go to all of them and look up the look up the bios for all these VCs. Where do they go to college? It's a club, right? It's a good old boys club. I mean, that's what it is, right? Um, and we, and I like, that's why the, the VCs that I had, they were all entrepreneurs, right? If you look mm-hmm. at Reed, Raj, Josh, they started companies, sold them for a lot of money. Those are the kind of investors I like. It's the kind of investor I am because you relate to them. You're not going to screw people over when you're just like them. I mean, some people might, but most of them don't, right? And I'm not saying B school investor, you know, institutional, uh, you know, pedigree, you know, Harvard or bad people. Um, I just don't think that they've run companies, right? So they don't have an understanding of the employees and, and I'm, you know, guys like Fred Wilson, he's never run a company other than the firm he has. Um, he's never been a startup guy. He's been doing it for so long, he gets it, right? But the newer guys are less than a decade in. I, I don't know that they get it. And you can just see by their returns and their investments and the performance of their investments. They just they just don't get it. Like the DSDTTT I was telling you about, they do something very similar in Harvard, apparently. It's like a WWW, what, where, when, whatever, you know? But mm-hmm. they're not following it. <laughs> so there's just, money out, right? <laughs> write the check. Because if we wait on a, the best investment ever, we're the worst firm because the, the, the what's going to happen is when when you raise money from an LP, the limited partners, because I'm an LP in a lot of uh, venture firms as well. And mm-hmm. when you do that, you, you don't write a check for $400,000, $500,000. You commit mm-hmm. to it. And then they do capital mm-hmm. calls. And they just keep calling down on it over and over and over again. I actually have a capital call right now on one of my VCs. Um, so mm-hmm. you, you're not like writing it all at once, right? But if you mm-hmm. if you say, I'm going to commit a million dollars, and then you're not hearing from them for like a year on a capital call, you're like, what are these guys even doing, you know? So it doesn't. So where's the money getting deployed? Right. Yeah. What are we doing? Because now I'm sitting in cash, waiting for you to deploy it. At least a cash-like asset, something like that. 
um, which is not good. I'm, I'm, being, I'm being debased. I'd rather you put the money to work as fast as possible. And that's the problem. There's urgency from the LP. Get rid of my money, please. <laughs> which is crazy to people that don't have any money. They're like, wait, what? Like, they have millions. Why would they want to get rid of it? <laughs> because you can't sit on it anymore. You're literally losing value on the money you sit on. So they need it to be in assets that are growing. Um, that's why like the real estate market's so big, right? Because you're buying real estate and you know immediately you have the real estate and it's going up with inflation, right? Um, but they're, So how are they getting the money from these guys? Well, who are they? They're pension funds. So it's really all of our money. It's our parents' money, right? They're taking the American people's money and they're putting it into venture capital, all kinds of other assets. Mm. Well, so there is this dynamic that you just described, which is really interesting. Um, essentially, you don't want to be sitting in cash. And when you, when you commit to some amount of uh, money for, an L, uh, for a VC fund as an LP, then you do get capital calls, and if uh, and you want that capital deployed as quickly as possible, so you can see realize returns on it. Because if it's sitting on the sidelines and it hasn't been deployed yet, then it's not earning you any interest. So um, the, this melting ice cube effect of uh, of the dollar seems to be fueling a lot of this VC growth. That's exactly right, and that, that's that's how I see it. I mean, where else is it? Where is it going from? So, you think about it; like the assets are growing tremendously. You know, they, they've gone up a lot. I mean, just in the last year, look at real estate because of what happened with the money printer. Um, I think the town I grew in, I grew up in. I, I have a guy that I'm friends with from high school, and he's a realtor. There. He posted on his Facebook today: thirty-eight percent year over year for the average median home. That's unbelievable in one year. That's more than it was in the in the in the boom in two thousand seven and two thousand eight before the crash. Well, that that's about the rate of monetary expansion with the Fed, right? Like fifteen point five trillion to about twenty uh, in the yep. M two money supply. But they tell you no, it's not. <laughs> but there it is, <laughs> right? I mean, let's just look yeah. at the numbers. You just you can't. You, numbers don't lie. You look at these numbers and you're like, well, what what is what is going on? I mean. It's a little scary. Like um, this is why we like Bitcoin, right? This is exactly why we like Bitcoin because this is a real problem. And at some point, and I don't. By the way, I don't think with Bitcoin, when the major crash comes, Bitcoin will crash too. There's no question about it. But it will come back, and it will be the thing that survives. I think Tina. You know, we know Tina, right? Bitcoin Tina. He always says, and I literally just talked to him on the phone today. He called me up about something, and we were telling. He always goes into this kind of stuff within five minutes, you know. And we're talking, and he's like, he goes, "I think the real problem." I hear him slamming on his desk. You know, he's so excited. He's like, "The real problem is if you leave money." In even even the brokerage accounts or anything, he's like, you're not going to get it out. That's what I'm worried about the most. He's like, people don't understand. It's going to get locked in. And I think he might be right about that. Like they're going to lock you up, and it's like they want to lock you into the system in a way, you know. Um, if there's a major crash. Um, well, that that was the problem with the gold standard, right? Like like they locked it up and said you you can't convert it to gold anymore. And right. you know, at some point, maybe some equivalent of that. And, and I don't know what they'll do for us, but it might be your you know because nobody owns stock anymore. No, 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 I own stock. No, no, you don't own stock. Fidelity and Schwab own the stock. You have like an IOU. <laughs> That's all you have. If you call them up and say, "Can you send my stocks to me?" Because I own it, they'll be like, "Not so much. We can liquidate and give you your cash." <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, there, you, you, it's not a bearer instrument. It's a registered instrument. Right. And only registered brokers, I think, can uh, own that stuff. So That's you have correct. a claim to their, uh, their, their ownership. Well, so let's move on from uh, sort of like the VC world to uh, sort of like the angel world. Because, uh, sure. you know, you mentioned how Naval kind of changed the game a little bit with AngelList. And, uh, and, you know, that brought a lot more investors. Can you describe what that is and how, how it sort of changed the VC game? Sure. I, I met Naval through, I think, Raj or Reed years ago. Great guy. I love Naval. Very, very smart individual. Um, when I met him, he didn't have a business. Um, this was like 06, right? He didn't have AngelList. It was really interesting, though. So I, I was introduced to him, and they said, uh, really smart individual. I think you're going to like this guy. And, and the idea that I had was very similar to the company he owned previously. He owned ePinions, which was kind of a review opinion site. And then we did this thing called WikiU, which is I can create a profile for Jimmy Song, even if he doesn't want to be on a social network. And now he has one, regardless if he wants to or not, people can write their opinion about it. <laughs> so, we, so I was hanging out with him and I went over to his office, and, you know, whatever. Actually, he came to our office and he came to New York. Mm -hmm. And uh, super smart guy, he had a blog. He's like, I think you should check out my blog, venturehacks.com. And he teaches you all these venture hacks. I mean, it's the name of the blog, right? Mm -hmm. So basically, if you get a term sheet from a VC, he's like, most of these guys, they don't know any, most of these guys being startup founders, they don't know anything about what they're signing. They don't know what, um, he called it the uh, option pool shuffle was one of the things. Mm -hmm. So this is a real trick. VCs play a lot of dirty tricks. Those, you're, let's say me and you started a company together and we go and mm -hmm. meet with Sequoia and we sit down mm -hmm. with them. They're going to say, do you guys have an option table set up yet? Any stock options for employees? Mm -hmm. He's like, no, we don't have any employees. It's just me and Jimmy. It's like, oh, okay. 
all right, we're going to make the investment and then you guys can dilute before the investment to that and then we'll make it afterwards. I'm like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. Like, well, what are you talking about? And it's like, <laughs> well, how much? And it's like, we should do 20%. Well, we're not using mm-hmm. all of it now, right? Yeah, 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 we set up now. Why? Because I diluted 20% pre and then I dilute to another 20% to that. That's a massive dilution. They don't want to get diluted, right? So he taught people, like they're playing these little tricks. There's another thing like accrued dividends um, where they're earning dividends of eight to 10% on their money and by the way, I don't know what it is these days, but they're still earning on this. And, and like, frankly, they couldn't have earned it anyway. There's no interest rates as we know, right? So, mm-hmm. but they don't earn it in cash. They earn it in a stock in your business upon a, upon a sale, um, an M&A or an IPO in the future. They'll convert to common on their interest payment, um, which mm-hmm. is further dilution, right? So all these little mm-hmm. tricks that he had, he was kind of outlying uh, on, on his website. And he told me, he's like, what happened is... Um, he was a co-founder in Epinions. Um, he left mm-hmm. Epinions, and then later they sold the company. And then the VCs mm-hmm. tried to screw him out of his equity percentage they, of the part for the earnout. Um, they were like, "Well, you're no longer there. You don't deserve an earnout." And he's like, "Well, I mean, I'm a shareholder. Are you guys getting an earnout?" Well, yeah, we are, but we put capital in. You never put capital in. He's like, "No, no, no." So he sued them, and he won. And he says, "What do you think happens when you sue VCs in the Valley and win? That's it. I'm unfundable. That's you know." So he was like on the outside. And his mission and goal was to completely, completely disrupt the venture capital industry, which is what he did. He created AngelList and he completely disrupted the industry um, more than I think anybody has. But it's really interesting because of what happened um, with the money growing, he actually just filled in a need that they needed anyway, which was who's going to take the seed rounds, the Series A rounds, right? It used to be that a Series A round was like $1 to $2 million. Now that's like a pre-seed round, right? It's, some, it's just a bunch of people on Angel. Everything's been bumped up, yeah. Everything's moving up, right? And the, and the B rounds are now like, you know, five to 10 million or et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's just crazy what's going on. Uh, but anyway, he created this platform. Um, and if you look, um, you guys can Google this. If you, if you pull up on Google and you type in like Naval, Ravikant, Rose Garden, Jobs Act, mm-hmm. he was standing with Steve, Ch- uh, Steve Case, which is the founder of AOL, behind Obama at the Rose Garden when he signed the Jobs Act. And they lobbied to have in the Jobs Act like crowdfunding and stuff. As you know, mm-hmm. there is a law in place that does not allow non-accredited investors to invest. An accredited investor mm-hmm. is someone that makes between, I think, two or $300,000 a year and has to have a net worth of a million dollars. They've had this law in place since like 1933, which was when mm-hmm. implemented originally. I believe it was implemented so that the good old boys right, can mm-hmm. invest and keep control of the investments, not have competition. right? And today... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's ridiculous, you know. Uh, imagine what that would have been worth back then if it was a billion dollars, right? But they <laughs> yeah, maintain that for nineteen thirties. Yeah, I mean, Jesus, right? Yeah. So, but no. So today, you know, they they've lowered these rules now. They've laxed the rules a little bit. Um, companies can raise so much under certain rules, and you know the way the regulation is set up um, from ordinary investors, which I I don't understand who you're really trying to protect against. I don't think that's what they're really trying to do. I think they're trying to protect the investment from being taken away from the guys that you know want the investment that have all the money um so yeah that's that's pretty much that okay so they they brought in sort of like the smaller investors into angelist yeah. and obviously it's it's changed the game a little bit because uh previously you had series a series b series c now you have seed pre-seed and i don't know even even like pre-pre-seed like some sort of like angel angel round or something like that um, so describe what, what happened there, why, why it kept kind of moving down or, or, or having sort of like earlier and smaller rounds and, uh, you know, maybe the other, uh, firms that used to do series a, like got bigger. What, 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 what it's happened? all about what I said earlier. So the funds mm-hmm. they make, they're conflicted, right? They're making money mm-hmm. on two and 20. So if we had a $1 billion fund size and there's like, three or four partners, uh, just, let's just say it's a $500 million under management. So $500, mm-hmm. $500 million under management um, on a, um, for three to four people um, with a 2% would be like what? We're making $10 million between the three or four partners and then all the lower level um, analysts uh-huh. that work for you and stuff, as well as your office space. These guys are making millions of dollars no matter what happens over the life cycle of that fund for five to 10 years. Um, and then they mark everything up and then they go from a 500 to a billion. So now they're making $20 million a year, right? Um, and the, and the team's not growing that big. Um, they're just making a lot more money and these funds have gotten massive, like billions and billions of dollars, some of these funds. Um, 
And, you know, because, again, asset values are growing. There's more money to be put to work um, for the LPs, which are the wealth, you know, the wealth funds, the family offices. They're all growing, growing, growing as a perpetual growth engine. And they have to get the money to put to work. So they just they're take and they and they work with the trusted partners they've worked with in the past. So they're like, oh, Andreessen, we'll just give you more money. Like they're raising crypto funds, all kinds of different funds in the billions. Right. And they're getting a two and 20 on that. I mean. That's that's the thing. So that left room at the bottom because they're not working on the small stuff, and the ball was filling that in. He didn't know this was going to happen in 2006, unless he's that diabolically smart. I have no idea, but I doubt it. It kind of just organically sort of happened where he filled in where they left, and they went to the larger rounds, and then the, and then they stayed private longer and longer and longer, and so they had to fill in those rounds at the higher end, and, and the money for all the assets. Uh, for the LPs, all their wealth was growing, so they had to deploy more capital to them on a proportional basis. So I think that's what's happened organically over the last 10 plus years. And so the key is you got to get in the rocket ship, which means you got to spread, right? You got to invest in a lot of different companies. Don't overthink it. Give them a bunch of money. Fail fast if it's not working. Move on. Go to the next company. And the ones that work, press. Give them more. Give them more. Make it the biggest thing ever. And is it really a great company? We'll find out later. <laughs> All right, so um, we've talked about uh, you know the VC game, the angel game, and uh, all of this money sort of like flowing in. There's almost too much money and not enough entrepreneurs, or at least that that seems to be the complaint that I hear from every single VC. Yet when I when I look at like what companies get funded, it, it's almost always like okay, there's one hot company. Everyone is trying to get into that one hot company. And the 30 other companies that are looking for money, no one pays attention to. Can, right. so can you describe that like dynamic and why it, it, it tends to be like that? It's like a winner take all, I guess. Mm -hmm. There's there, like every decade, there's a couple big winners. I mean, these days there seems to be more and more like Instacart and all these mm -hmm. companies that are, there's so many unicorns. I mean, when I had the video sharing site and YouTube sold for over a billion, um, that was like the one, right? There was well, one a billion was worth a little bit more money back then. Yeah. <laughs> 15 years ago. I mean, yeah. but yeah, I mean like today there's hundreds of companies, there's deca unicorns in the tens of mm -hmm. billions of dollars, right. That are privately held companies. And then there's a bunch of them between one and 9 billion. Um, so everybody wants in the best companies now is really what mm -hmm. it is. So the money's just chasing that because it becomes a, I guess what it really is, it's like uh so risk reward kind of in a way. So they're coming in late, like the later stage investors, and they're pumping, like T. Rose even coming into these things, and they're pumping money in. Because it's not a matter of will it work and is it going to return? It's a matter of how much and when at that point. Mm. So uh, I got into Snapchat and Facebook when it was, you know, the later stage. It was a couple of years before the IPO. And I constantly do things like that. I'm in Klarna. I'm, in, I'm going to Gemini. Um, a lot of different things, you know, so those investments, it's, you know, you're going to have a return that's going to do really well. So I think that's what the money, the money's wanting to go into what they consider. It's almost like a bond like instrument. It doesn't give you a yield, but you know, you're going to get a return and there's nowhere else to put your money. So you're like, well, just put it there. Cause you know, it's a diversification. Do I really want to just be in public equities, you know, or just all Bitcoin, or do you want to have some private equity exposure, which outperforms the, the markets significantly? Yeah, and, and this is the strange thing is that all of this capital ends up getting deployed and not necessarily used in the best way, right? Like if you're oh, if no. you're yeah. if you're a startup and you know you you already raised thirty million and somebody wants to come in and you squeeze them in on that round and get another like five million, what, what are you going to do with that five million? It's not necessary. You're not going to be hiring you know uh, you know the next VP of engineering with that money. It's probably like marketing. Okay, well let's uh, let's try out you know Europe and uh, you know at, you know like different countries and see if we can market there and you know those fizzle. And, That's what you, like you Uber did, right? Uber's yeah. a prime example of this. Like they had they were so hot when they were public when they were private. I mean, um, mm -hmm. they were raising so much, and Facebook was too. Actually, Facebook raised. I think they raised the most money as a private company ever. They broke the records mm -hmm. when they did it. I'm not sure if it's been broken since, but I think at the time it was like billions of dollars raised by a private company. It was like holy cow, this is unbelievable. <laughs> it was really crazy. Like their value, the, the money they raised was higher than most 99 of all valuations of companies. It was just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, but to your point. What do you do with the money? Um, mm. They did things with like acquisitions and stuff. And, and Mark's been very smart about how he's run that company. Mm. Um, he made the Instagram, Instagram acquisition at the time. People thought it was crazy. He did it over the course of a weekend with Kevin. He's like, shake his hand. The rumors are mm. they shook hands. And then he's like, mm. just paper it up. And literally the deal was done like that, you know, and the lawyers had to do it all. Mm. Um, but they bought it for a billion dollars. And everybody thought that was mm. crazy. 
today, what's Instagram worth? It's billions, tens of billions probably, right? It's unbelievable. <laughs> Similar I'm thing sure. with YouTube, right? Like it, it yeah. was bought for a billion. It's probably worth a lot more than that now. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think the estimate that I saw is about a hundred billion. It's it mm-hmm. baked into the value. And now they're talking about splitting up Google and, and you know, splitting two companies and mm-hmm. whatever because of the monopolistic kind of things. But, um, you know, the number one search engine is Google in the world. People don't realize this. The number two search engine is YouTube, actually. Mm. More, more, yeah, the second large, most searches in the world every day are done on YouTube. It's incredible. Mm. Um, mm. But so the money is just like pouring into all these companies. And then what are they doing with the money? And in your case, your point is that, you know, Uber was a great example. They started to go global. They tried to get in China and other places, I think, um, you know, internationally and stuff. Um, but they also, I, I remember it was like, I want to say it was like 2000. 12 maybe my buddy got married in oklahoma so i flew down to oklahoma i'm in the airport and i see this gigantic billboard ad for inside the airport it was like the whole entire wall and i know advertising from my background i was like that is an expensive ad it was a black <laughs> thing with the with the white uber or the silver ubers on and i'm like you know how much money i was telling my wife i go honey do you know how much money they're spending on this and it's not just this one location these are in airports all over the country i'm sure right they work with large agencies and they deploy the capital they're just blowing through money. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I, I don't know how you quantify a billboard ad. That tells you a lot, right? They're doing television, TV commercials. I mean, this is incredible. I was, what, these are private companies that were doing this kind of stuff. It's just it's unbelievable. Never thought I would see that 20 years ago. Well, I mean, you kind of did, right? Because I, I remember like Pets.com and yeah. like Buy.com. And so like they, Buy.com literally had an ad on TV like with, just a black screen and buy.com in the middle. I, I still remember 15 seconds <laughs> yeah. of that. That was it. And, you know, like they they blew through the money so quickly. Um, and I, uh, you know, after the dot-com crash, we thought, hey, that that's sort of like the excess and whatever. They'll, and then, never, work. They'll never do that again. <laughs> yeah. And, and then it happens again and again. And, you know, yeah. like, of course, what happened it with took a while, Yeah, yeah. I just, yeah, WeWork like, was a disaster. That's that's the telltale sign of like what 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 could seriously go wrong with this. What, yeah. So, can you talk about that a little bit? What what went wrong with WeWork and why did it get valued so high? What what was wrong with it? I I never understood the value, right? Because mm-hmm. they didn't own the real estate. They were subleasing this thing, right? It made no sense. It's like what what is the value based on? I guess mm-hmm. it was based on project. It's always based on the promise, right? They mm-hmm. they they sell on promise, like what we're going to grow into. And they just, it just got, it was just the prime example of overhype, you know, mm. uh, from the investors, right? Um, mm. And we're seeing this in the public markets. I invested in, um, I got in a Tesla at um, $90 a share. And when it mm. popped and it went to 900, it's a 10X and it happened in two mm. years, two years of 10X. I mean, what are we doing? Mm. This is a company that's already a pr- public company. It was at that time. It was a twelve hundred PE ratio. Are you kidding me? It would take forever to get your money back. You'll never get your money back. They don't even pay a dividend, right? So you, you, it doesn't make any sense. So when it dropped from nine hundred to eight fifty, I got out. I sold it, and now it's struggling in the six to seven hundreds, roughly. You know, bouncing around. I think they got a lot of room to go to the downside, actually, because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, at some point, the world will come back to reality on values. At some point, I don't know when, but it's it, it just ships. Particularly the public markets, it's so liquid they can ship. They rotate. They'll rotate from growth to cyclicals to value, right? Um, and value has just been massively undervalued for a very long time. Yeah, it, it does seem like there's sort of like a Keynesian building contest uh, like yeah. at play here where people just want to buy a particular stock and you know pump something stupid like Hertz or AMC or something like that. <laughs> and that becomes sort of like the thing. And it's it's not about the underlying value or what, what they're doing. But I think what you're saying is this has been the case in the VC world for a while now. It, it's never been about fundamental value. It's about user acquisition or popularity or something to that effect. Yeah, hundred percent. And and we're actually seeing this in crypto outside of Bitcoin, right? You're seeing mm-hmm. this in the, the, the shitcoin casino. You're mm-hmm. seeing an NFT space. Um, mm-hmm. It's like, what is the value actually behind this? Now I think NFTs actually can, I know you would disagree with this, but I think that they can, <laughs> I think they can have a value within a, it's not there yet, but I think in the future I'm projecting out, right? I think mm-hmm. I see something where, um, not in the use of like a static image, but there might be like gamification with actual characters and basically like second life. Now you and I have talked mm-hmm. about this many times and your perspective on it is, but why does that need to be on a blockchain? I don't disagree mm-hmm. with you. It could just be so centralized, right? You could just have it as a game on a database. And that's basically what they should be doing. Well, they're, they're it's the same this, thing as a sword in World of Warcraft. Then you know, like it's like I could see that having value because it's useful in the game. But yeah, hundred percent. I was just talking to Junset the other day, and he was saying that um, we were talking about the uh, rare Pepe's, 
And mm-hmm. uh, rare Pepe's are really interesting because it started and originated on the Bitcoin blockchain, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> and you're on laughing. Counterparty, yeah, 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 exactly. Counterparty. So it's very interesting, right? It was like, oh wow. So the Bitcoiners, um, they're anti-NFT, and I'm like, but it came from Bitcoin, actually. Like the Bitcoiners <laughs> created this stuff. Why are we anti? And the reason is, I was talking to Colin and some of the miners, I'm like, because it's on the Ethereum blockchain. That's the main gripe. And I said, well, then why don't we bring it back over on the Bitcoin blockchain? Like, why don't we just do that? And the question is a coordinated effort of people that do it, I guess, you know? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't, I think it's a pollution of the blockchain and I, I don't think it has any place for it. And if you're going to do something like that, it's much better done centralized anyway, just kind of like Blizzard's database that has all the cool swords and stuff. Right? Like those are NFTs too, right? Like I'm blown away I... by one thing that I've seen. I've been going down this mm-hmm. rabbit hole for the last week. I don't know if you saw my tweets. Mm-hmm. I'm just trying to understand mm-hmm. NFTs. So mm-hmm. I, to do that, I had to like mess around and buy it. I'm, <laughs> I really could care less. You know, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not trying to get rich with an NFT, but I wanted to understand what is the hype and mm-hmm. what I didn't know, Jimmy, I was blown away. Did you know that? I'm sure you do. Do you know how much revenue OpenSea is doing on these NFTs? Oh, it's an insane amount of money. Yeah. $3 billion a month. When I got involved in online a advertising, month? a wow. month, last month wow. they did $3 billion. When I got in online advertising, it was a 10 to $15 billion industry. Today, it's mm-hmm. like $100 billion. They're at 30-something billion dollars now. And I'm like, mm-hmm. how many years old is, is OpenSea? This is incredible. Well, I don't know how what's much happening. Fun, I, I'd be curious to find out how, many, how much money people spend on the lottery because that's essentially what it is. Like, it's it's gambling like, in many ways. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're buying a lottery ticket, right? And particularly if they don't know what they're doing, because this guy, John Gillardi, you remember John, he had the bald head in Clubhouse. He's doing it differently. He's treating it almost like you would trade stocks. He's going off of information that he's getting, not private information. It's publicly available, but he's going to Discord, looking at engagement numbers, looking at rarity scores, all this kind of stuff. But most people aren't doing that. They're going in and just buy, oh, it's a cute looking NFT. No, you're going to lose. You're going to get your face ripped off. You pay one ETH or something like that, and the thing's worth like point something ETH. And it's like, you don't know what you're doing. And you're playing against guys that do like John. And I just, I encourage everybody really, really research NFTs and understand what you're doing if you're doing that, because you're probably going to get your face ripped off by these guys that understand the game, <laughs> right? And they're probably going to get their faces ripped off in the future when the things start to go the other way, because I don't think it goes up perpetually forever. No, 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 it doesn't. And this is why I tell people not to, uh, not to mess with altcoins or NFTs or anything like that, because it's really a giant gamble. And it is. It's really a Ponzi. It's like the DC thing. It's the it, drive brought up. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's in many ways, even though it's not an illegal, but it's very much akin to you need more money pumping it in. Um, otherwise, it stops, right? And, and and it either goes sideways or it goes down at some point. I'm just blown away by seeing some of these things go for millions of dollars for a hash on the blockchain. Mm, yeah. You're not getting <laughs> or a database row that people verified. Yeah, that, I mean, it, it it seems absolutely ridiculous. Uh, well, but going going back to sort of like the VC and the money and all that stuff. Um, if the money spigot stops, what do you think happens to all of this stuff? Because in a sense, like I, I think the argument you've been making this whole time is the money spigot can't stop because <laughs> uh, like, if it stopped, all of this stuff, the entire infrastructure, that uh, the entire house of cards just absolutely crumbles and we got like nothing left, right? Like what, what, uh, like, is that a part of maybe the equation that, you know, people in politics and certainly monetary policy and Federal Reserve, like, is that a big part of why? I don't think they can stop it. Um, So think about this, like the entire country, the biggest industry for the country is housing. I mean, there's so many things related to housing, Um, home repairs, um, just like the plumbers and carpenters. And it's a gigantic industry, just massive, massive industry. And so what happens is, most of the people buy a house and they're thinking about buying a house of what they can afford per month based off of their debt to income ratio. Um, and a big factor in the price of the home that you're going to pay on the monthly basis is the loan and the interest rate. So if you, you have a four or 5% interest rate, these days it's like 3%, I'm sorry. But if they increase the interest rates, it's going to increase the cost of the capital, which means the housing market has to drop in value because you can't have both. You can't have housing go up and interest rates go up. It's impossible. So they know that. And that's why interest rates have been going downwards all these years. They can't push them up. They tried to do it from 2015 to 18. And in the last hike in December of 18, it crashed the markets, right? And all it was is one extra quarter point and the market just sold off tremendously, right? They have a major problem because they have all these assets that they on the balance sheet. They're buying $120 billion in bonds every month. They're adding it to the balance sheet. Not so bad if they stop that. And apparently, I think Europe or one of the other countries just announced that they're going to stop buying. We'll see what mm-hmm. that does. We'll, we'll see. Mm-hmm. 
well, our their, government their rates are all down. negative already they've gone down exactly. so low that it's like ugh, i don't know it's unbelievable like sweden definitely has negative interest rates that, that's for sure yeah. i know people over there um but yeah so they're they're pumping it in on, on a double effect they're keeping the interest rates low and then they're, they're adding to the balance sheet now those things will fall off the balance sheet because they have maturity dates all these bonds mm-hmm. they're buying right mm-hmm. what won't fall off the balance sheet are when they buy the etfs for the bonds that's perpetual <laughs> right so at some mm-hmm. point they have to sell that back into the market well they but have the to market will see that, that. yeah yeah, they have to unwind things that they own that are that are real assets, right? Um, but yeah, I, I I can't tell you like where where it's going from here. I just don't think that they can raise interest rates because if they did, they would cause the the crash. Um, they can try to stop buying. They call that tapering. That's usually the first step, and they'll they could try to see if tapering that spooks the market. If it does, they'll just go right back to buying. That's what they have to do. They're stuck. They're really stuck, and the market knows they're stuck. So now it's like dang, the the tail wagging the dog kind of thing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how you get out of this scenario. Um, and sometimes these markets adjust themselves without the Fed's ability to stop it. And that may happen at some point. We may just completely capitulate and not believe in the Fed and the dollar and the markets mm-hmm. just crash without them. Without any means necessary, they try. It just may not, may not help it at some point. Well, I, the, the pattern, at least in the U.S., has been for the Fed to continue to do more and more drastic things. Uh, so I, I, I still remember like, I think it was like 1987 or 1989 or something like that, Black Friday. And like basically all the Fed had to do was drop interest rates from five and a half to 5.25. And that that cured everything. And 92, big recession. They had to drop from like uh, like four to two, something like that. And and then like, you know, 2000, it, you know, they, they had to go very close mm-hmm. to one percent something like that 2000 they creeped it back up again yep yeah they they had to go all the way down to zero and add qe and this time it's not just zero it's qe and like buying all these like toxic assets off the market and providing with that was the kiss of death i think when they started to do the qe it was it was over because when you added some more money supply into the system Mm -hmm. it creates the Mm -hmm. prices to go up so it creates inflation Mm -hmm. assets started Mm -hmm. going up that's when you started to see um, venture capital really start to move and you see these funds get bigger and bigger because the money's out there. They have access to the effect. They're getting the access and then they're deploying the capital. This is a major problem for us. And that money floats through the economy in a variety of different ways. It gets right down to the hands of the other people, not in a big way to make them wealthy, but it does float it. And now, in addition to them pumping money to the big banks, they're pumping money directly to the people now too, mm. which is definitely causing inflation right now, as we can see. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. You see the price of gas is up 50%. I mean, is this what's going on? You know? well, or, or even like places that can't hire anybody because like no one, no one wants to work when they're getting that much money from the government. It's like, well, I'm, the difference is only like a couple bucks an hour. I'd rather stay home. You know, like, yeah, and do I know a guy. He owns a construction company. He told me mm-hmm. that his guys were making so much money staying home. They're like, I, I, I just can't. I, I'm sorry. I can't come to work. And he's like, that's, that's BS. He's like, what if I paid you off the books? Would you come work for me? And they're like, well, yeah, I'll do that. So he's got guys working off the books <laughs> in cash, and then they're still collecting their stimulus checks. So they're oh. making more money than he is. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. This is yeah, unbelievable. I, 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 they, they, this is a sort of like perverse incentives we get into. Uh, so let, let's shift gears a little bit. So uh, we, we do have this pin that's about to pop this giant financial Ponzi scheme slash bubble that, that we've been describing this whole time. And that is, of course, Bitcoin. We have this uh, sort of like release valve for a lot of this um, uh, money that wants to go somewhere and can't really find it. And uh, as you, uh, you've been mentioning, you know, assets are getting extremely uh, competitive. So that means the price goes up on all of that. Um, you know, VC funds, you know, they, they have way too much money and they have to bid up all of these startups that are hot and mm. they, they get like DECA unicorn status, like very quickly in a in a very undeserved way and so on. Um, so what what happens as Bitcoin becomes more of a prominent part of everyone's portfolio? What 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 changes? How how do things uh you know end up? I don't know. We talk about this all the time, right? <laughs> I really don't know what ends up happening. Because that's you're you're trying to come into almost like the hyper Bitcoinization transfer, right? Not at that point, but leading into it. And um that's a world that I can't really figure out. You know, I'm trying to understand what that transition will look like. I don't have the answers. I'm not smart enough to know that. Uh, I do know you want to own Bitcoin. That's for damn sure, <laughs> right? Because it is the only thing that, like you say all the time, it's the most credible, scarce asset ever created mm-hmm. in mankind, right? And I agree mm-hmm. with that 100% wholeheartedly. Um, and what's interesting is like when that starts to happen, it's going to be because those wealth funds are moving the money in. That's why the number is going to go up so much. They're going to start pushing the money into Bitcoin at some point. Mm-hmm. What is the 
what what is the impetus for that to happen? I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it's fear of some sort, something, some crack in the system, and they say we got to protect the money because I got to get out of the system. I'm not quite sure. It might be the numbers going up so much that they just chase that number instead of the venture numbers, right? Or the yeah. other investment opportunities. At some point, they'll really believe the 200% Kager, which is going to slow down over time, but it's still going to outperform all these other assets. And when they start to get more comfortable with the stock to flow from plan B and all these kind of things, which I think may have broke, I'm not sure, but but mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It's, it's still got the pattern, right? The, the mm-hmm. movement. But we've been through how many how many cycles we've been through? Three cycles so far? Well, four if you can. Well, so... One in 2011, two in 2013, one in 2017, and we're in the middle of one now. So it's a number five, yeah. Five. Yeah, the first one's tough, though, because it was such a nascent kind of asset at that point. But yeah, yeah, sure. So, But whatever. I mean, the point is there's a history, right? And you can see. And I think in the beginning, they discredit that. I think a traditional investor would discredit the beginning. Um, they do this on all investments, by the way. I don't care what it is, venture startups and stuff. It's when it starts to scale, they start to see the repeatable model and the belief that this will continue to repeat, right? At a certain point, and you're starting to see it to some extent. Like I brought Anthony Scaramucci on my show and he's got Skybridge Capital. He has a fund for Bitcoin, which is weird to me that people give him money to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> he just buy Bitcoin. But they do because they don't want to. And, and well, what I one and zero, why? I don't know. Maybe maybe that makes sense if you don't It doesn't make sense. Like, I was like, why are they doing this? And he says um, there are certain institutions and funds and stuff have bylaws that they're not allowed to custody their own stuff. So they need mm-hmm. a third-party custody. So mm-hmm. there's just an opportunity for him at the moment because – and there probably always will be opportunity for certain. Mm-hmm. Like if you're a family office or something like the, the Rockefellers, they, they can't just like put that in the safe somewhere. Like It's like what, mm-hmm. do I, what do I do with this? Now, if you're large enough, I guess you could just go to Fidelity and get custodial services, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what he's using anyway. Um, mm. So these funds charging fees probably go away and probably just go right to the custodial services at some point that for the for the uh, for the money that needs that right based mm. off of their rules uh, within the bylaws. Um, but at some point that money's going to start to move into Bitcoin in a bigger way because you're starting mm. to see it now through his fund and other funds. And uh, I think at some point you're going to see a lot of money flowing into Bitcoin from you know traditional institutional as- uh, money and assets. Yeah, and at that point, like uh, you know, uh, you're you're going to start lacking LPs as a VC fund, and maybe even like hedge funds and yes. stuff like that. Because, That's where you see the shrink happen. Yeah, and uh, you know, what what do you think happens to a lot of the B- these VCs? Oh, well, some I, of them are just going to go away, no question mm-hmm. about it. They're just going to mm-hmm. disappear, right? Mm-hmm. And and VC funds do blow up all the time, right? Like if you, that's what I'm you saying. Get... I'd be nice to see to get rid of all the fat. Like, just why mm-hmm. do we need that, right? Like, it's mm-hmm. just too much in the system that that shouldn't be there. Um, and they know it. You know who you are. You know it. Right? <laughs> You're going away. <laughs> right? We're coming it's for so you. Fun. Bitcoin's taking you out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the yeah. The these are the guys that end up uh, funding the really stupid stuff. Oftentimes. I mean, look, there's um, certain yeah, investors, and, and it's like a perpetual thing. They have access, mm-hmm. and then all the best, all the best entrepreneurs come to them. Sequoia, Andreessen, Kleiner, mm-hmm. like they've been around forever. They have a brand on the nameplate. But it's there's tons of venture capitalists that you never heard of, like hundreds mm-hmm. and hundreds of them, probably thousand plus of them. You never heard of these guys, like $20 million fund, $100 million fund, $30 million fund, $200 million funds. Like, do we really need all these funds? No, we don't. <laughs> they need it because they're getting two and 20, right? Yeah. Their LPs get convinced that they should do it, but they're, they don't have access. They don't know how to evaluate deals for the most part, right? Um, well, they don't have the deal flow to justify the, you know, the capital deployment. So, Andreessen's um, got the deal flow. Then it comes down to making the right decisions. But in many <laughs> ways, they're just investing in a lot of things and, and we'll see what happens. Well, it's it's a spray and pray mentality, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there is sort of like a, a very different um, sort of uh, ethic in the you know, VC space where it, it really is about getting to that unicorn level rather than, you know, uh, you know, viable businesses or, um, that's right. You know, uh, I guess goods and services that people appreciate or want or like, uh, and that, that's always kind of bothered me that, oh yeah. um, you know, there, there's so many businesses that are actually pretty good, but they never get a chance because, Basically, the VCs are like, well, you I, you go big or you go home. And like, That's right. We're not interested at all if you're going to be a $10 million business. And that might be a perfect- 100%. I, I sat in meetings with some of the ideas I've had over the years with mm-hmm. some because I have access. And I sat with these guys mm-hmm. and they're like, there's a thing called VC math, they call it. Mm-hmm. Basically, it's got to make sense financially. Like, We have all this money to deploy. We need to get a return and get you close to a billion dollars for this to make any sense for us to do it. And if I don't see that opportunity because the market, that's why I said the TTT, the TAM, Mm -hmm. total addressable Mm -hmm. market, has to be very large because you're only going to get a percentage of it. And if you do happen to scale, which is the S, and you capture whatever that is, 5%, 10% market share, what's the value of the company? What's the market share you're capturing? What's the value? 
got to make sense. So if I'm coming in at $10 million, I got to see a potential 100x on this, right? Maybe mm-hmm. 1,000x. But if the best potential is only 100 and you fall short of 20 to 30, that's not going to move the needle for them in the fund because they need to have every one of those investments they have to believe can be a 1,000x. They obviously all will not do that. But mm. if they're betting on, a, like, say, half the portfolio is like singles and doubles, we would say, versus <laughs> a bunch of potential grand slams, they're not all going to do singles and doubles either, right? So there's just a higher probability of the, that the outcome is going to be poor. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, it, it's kind of sad because uh, we, we know for a fact that like something like 70% of all jobs are from small businesses, not, yep. not big businesses. And the entire VC thing is about making these giant corporations uh, like the successes, the best, uh, you know, the, the things that they all brag about are the Facebooks and Googles of the world, which are enormous. And, you know, they're, they're conglomerates and they have enormous, uh, amounts of power and lobbying and all this other stuff. And that's sort of the kind of kinds of companies that the system produces rather yeah. than, you know, the mom and pop sh- store that might have been might might be very profitable, might be useful and good for the community and so sure. on. Instead, we get, you know, all kinds of surveillance. And yeah, they'll like never that. do that mom and pop mm-hmm. stuff. That's never mm-hmm. happening, you know, and you won't even get that on angel list. They'll never invest mm-hmm. in you either. So you literally have to figure out how to beg, borrow, steal from Peter and pay Paul. I mean, you got to go to your family and friends. You got to get a loan from the bank. Those loans, by the way, this is the worst part of the system. Mm-hmm. Let's say you want to be an entrepreneur. You want to start your own company. You get an SBA loan, right? Mm-hmm. Small business association. They're going to make you use the collateral, the equity in your house. If it doesn't work, they're going to take your house from you. These VCs, they get to walk right away. They keep all the money. All the hedge fund managers as well on Wall Street, they never (laughs) lose financially, personally. They don't lose. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, uh, you know, this is where I I see sort of like a a lot of hope for Bitcoin because instead of having to beg, borrow, and steal and like, you know, like beg everybody that you know and, uh, you know, like jeopardize all your friendships and family relationships and things like that, you can instead just save, right? Like you just save in Bitcoin. You know, you work a normal job, you you wait five years, and then you have enough money to go try something instead of having to beg, borrow, and steal. Um, and I, ultimately, I think that's that's a much better model, and it has a lot better sort of like like mentality. Um, it, it's better for everybody, right? Because even even for the business owner, if you're if you're running a unicorn company, you have no life. You're like you're you're working 80, 90 hours a week or um, you know, if you're a CEO, you're constantly thinking about the next round of financing or whatever. Instead, like you can actually focus on like having a li- living a normal life and having a nice lifestyle business, which is actually much healthier for people. So, I, I, unfortunately, I we got away from that. A lo- we got away from that a long time ago, right? <laughs> right? I mean, you can still build those businesses, but the hard part is if you don't have the capital to do it, how do you build it? Um, mm. I got a neighbor next door. He's a franchisee for Planet Fitness. He started with one location. Then he opened another and another, and he kept taking the profits, open them and open them and open them. And then he started borrowing from the banks because now he had assets and stuff, and he had cash flow. He's got up to seventy locations, one of the largest Planet Fitness franchises in the country. And mm-hmm. uh, without without saying his numbers, like he, he he got a massive valuation, and he took money off the table to private equity firm. Private equity firms are buying into the franchisees, not the franchisor, <laughs> the franchisees. This is unbelievable. The money doesn't know where to go. It's like, oh, we like this return profile and the growth rates over time, and you can keep mm-hmm. growing into the territories you still have that are developed. And it's like I could never would have imagined 10, 15 years ago that private equity would look at a guy who's a franchisee. He's just following the <laughs> blueprint from them, right? He didn't even come up with the it's idea. It's like, oh, you're willing to do the work. We'll we'll put some money with you. <laughs> yeah, they're buying it. They bought like 75% of his business. He got a ton of money. I was like, oh my God. Just, he, he made more than I made when I sold the company. I was like, this is unbelievable. He didn't even invent the idea. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that kind of makes sense. And I, to me, like uh, having been a startup veteran and sort of like having been traumatized from uh, you know, working <laughs> at startups and so on, it does feel like, yeah, I, I, it does feel like you're kind of a slave to the VCs in some way, right? And they're like, "Oh, do this, do that," and if, if you don't do what they say, you're pretty much screwed. You're not going to. Oh, get they'll the fire next you. One hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I have a friend it, who's it, two brothers. This is a funny story. They they, they started. You send it. Remember that site? Uh-huh. You send it. Yeah. Yeah. And vaguely. They, they fired those guys, the two founding brothers. They replaced them with a management team. And the one brother was so distraught that they took his baby away from him that he hacked it and like did a DDoS attack on him. And then he, <laughs> he had, they found out it was coming from his house and then he had to go to jail. 
I mean, this is crazy. They, they totally mind screwed him to the point that he was like, and he should have done that. He should have definitely done that. I would have done that probably. You took my whole, this is my, everything I spent my entire last 10 years of my life on it. You just took it away from me. I mean, you got to keep most of his equity. They took some of it away, all this kind of stuff. The other thing they don't realize, when you raise money from a VC, they make you take your founder shares and reverse vest it. Yeah. Meaning, yeah, this is crazy. So like, they're like, oh, that to me is just insane. That's unbelievable. All right. So um, I think that's like a good spot to end it, right? Like there's so many things going on in the fiat economy and just incredibly weird incentives that it does sort of like allow for these giant unicorn companies, uh, but not really the mom and pop shops. And VCs are sort of like, I think what we've learned today is VCs are really just a, a symptom of this really, really big problem. So, What is it? Charlie Munger, show me the incentives. I'll show you the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. The incentives are deploy capital as fast as you can, make sure it's doing something, anything, and uh, everything to it and then it becomes a Keynesian beauty contest, something like that. All right. So uh Jay, um, where can people find you? Where can people contact you? Um on Twitter, J A Y G O U L D. I'm on Twitter and uh and also on uh YouTube. So I have my own podcast. It's called Docents. So if you just type in my name and um, you know an interview or something like that, um you'll probably find it there. Mm. All right. Well thanks for joining and uh hopefully I can get this podcast out. And uh we, we have had some trouble trying to get everything recorded, but uh hopefully it works. But yeah, thanks thanks for joining. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate it.